Last week, uh, you will recall, we reached the climax point of the prayer of Paul and Timothy uh, for the Colossians, and indeed the pivotal verse uh, that introduces the rest of the chapter in explaining in part what it was to be fitted, to be made fit for the inheritance of the saints, Paul set forth in a brief fashion the work of the Father in our redemption. Speaking first of our condition, the condition of man since the fall, he reminded us that we are in bondage to darkness, that we are blinded to truth and to holiness. We are under an intellectual and a moral darkness, and that we are not merely in this state as a condition, as if someone turned out the lights, but we are as those under its power, the power of darkness. We are servants of darkness, and of the prince of darkness, and willing servants at that, unable and unwilling to escape, and even hating the light and the truth, so that when it comes and would manifest our sin, men turn away from it and will not come to the light. And from this condition and from this power... God delivers us according to the word of Scripture who has delivered us from the power of darkness. We are rescued, set free, no longer under this power or in this condition if we are his people. But it is not, of course, a deliverance that takes place that we might become our own masters, not at all, because this deliverance also involves removal to another kingdom, being set under another authority, and that authority, the king of that kingdom, is God's Son, Jesus Christ, called in this text the Son of His love, who has delivered us from the power of darkness, and has removed us unto the kingdom of the Son of His love, the one upon whom His love rests, the one in whom He delights. And last week, we concluded with a, the uh, specific exposition of these verses. Now this week, Uh, We want to begin by raising a few comments about that verse uh, contextually, going back and relating it to the main points of the prayer beforehand, of which it is a part, and seeing the significance that it has there. We also want to consider the importance of this verse with regard to the preeminence of the Son, and also how it reflects on the false doctrine propagated in Colossae by some. And in course of doing that, to consider the applications from these things that are the most germane and the the most natural from the text. 
and uh, winding that up to prepare for the continuation of the exposition uh, in verse 14. Remember now that this entire section is still, uh, that we've just finished, is still part of the prayer of Paul and Timothy. The conclusion of that prayer, in fact, for the uh, Colossians. And I want to uh, note a couple of things about it in its context. Remember, first of all, that this escape from darkness into the kingdom of Christ is something for which men are viewed as giving thanks to the Father. Remember that we are talking about the four parts of the God-honoring, God-pleasing way of life. And the fourth one is giving thanks unto the Father. Now there's something uh, obvious here, and yet we easily forget uh, the very plain, the very plainest truth sometimes. Christians are too apt to be taken up with all manner of things that draw them away from their foundation and from their beginnings. In fact, some seem to make a principle about getting as far away from their beginnings as they can. But Paul holds out here that the Christian's heart and mind ought to be continually returning to his entry into the kingdom, to his deliverance and transformation out of the power of darkness. For this was the beginning of salvation. He does not say giving thanks for all things. He tells us that elsewhere. He says here that a God-honoring way of life is marked by those who give thanks to the Father, specifically with regard to His fitting us to be, part, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints by delivering us from the power of darkness and removing us to the kingdom of His Son. <clears throat> if a man were on a boat in the sea and he fell off and was drowning and near death, such that he was unable to save himself and ready to perish, and one came along and perhaps at great personal risk rescued him and drew him onto his own boat and saved his life, would he be thankful for a day? Would he be thankful to his rescuer for a week or for a month? Or for a year, he would be forever grateful to the one who rescued him. And I think that his thoughts would frequently revolve around that momentous time. But here is something inestimably greater than the rescue of a body from physical death. It is the rescue of an eternal soul from an eternity in hell. Shall those such delivered be thankful for a day, or for a month, or for a year, and then lock it away in a trunk, like some old discarded toy from childhood, no longer fit to be handled or considered? Paul says that that would be a grossly, hideously, 
dishonoring thing for the Christian to do. The Christian who honors God in his way and walk of life is one who for the whole course of his life continues to thank and praise God for his deliverance from darkness and removal to the kingdom of Christ. And this, of course, is partly done because it is not merely a backward perspective. It is not merely a dwelling on something that happened in the past, because that thing that happened in the past is the very foundation for the hope of the future. They are giving thanks unto the Father who has made them fit to be partakers of the future inheritance, but who has made them fit by a past deliverance from the power of darkness and removal into the kingdom of the Son of His love. The second observation that I would like to make regarding the conclusion of the prayer is that this thanksgiving of verse 12 is plainly an act that is proper only to the redeemed, only to those who have actually received such a spiritual blessing. This is not something a man or woman has because he has been baptized or because he went to school and got a degree in theology or because he can recite the doctrines of the faith or quote the proof texts or refute the heretics. <clears throat> Countless multitudes have those things and they have a name that they live but are dead. A man may go all his life a member of some congregation or another and yet never have been a partaker of this mighty deliverance and removal to Christ's kingdom. This is a prayer proper to the delivered. Consider the folly of our man rescued from drowning if, when he had not been rescued, but was still drowning, he began to thank his rescuer, who had not yet rescued him. And imagine that he was rescued. Well, he might go on imagining that he was rescued and thanking his imaginary rescuer, but where would he be by such a thing? He would still be in the ocean drowning. And if he kept on that way, he would drown. <clears throat> In the same way, only those who are actually delivered from darkness and put into Christ's kingdom can give thanks unto the Father for it being so. In fact, this is true of every work of a God-honoring walk. If we think about these verses, only the Lord's redeemed can walk in a way honoring to God. Only they can bring forth fruit in holiness because if you are not the redeemed of the Lord, what you bring forth is self-righteousness or barrenness or filthy rags. Only the redeemed of the Lord can increase in the true knowledge of God and in relationship with Him 
because otherwise they are at enmity with God and have not God as their father, but the devil. Only the redeemed of the Lord can be strengthened to suffer tribulation with patience because only they ultimately are the subjects of the work of his Holy Spirit in that strengthening. <clears throat> only the redeemed are those who are filled by God with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding because that filling is the gift of God's grace to his people and to none other. However, the lost man may flatter himself that he is a recipient of divine grace or deceive himself in order to calm his conscience and his fears. These things are not proper to him. He is an imposter. In vain does he give thanks because he has never been delivered. just wanted to make that perfectly clear. <clears throat> Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and removed us into the kingdom of his dear Son, implies one who has been made fit, who has been delivered, who has been removed unto a new kingdom. The... Second aspect in which I wanted to touch on these texts relates to the demonstration of true holiness that is made in them. The first part of this letter, you will remember, has been setting the stage for Paul's later direct attack on the false doctrines being spread in Colossae. And in a backwards fashion, I think, also contributing to that attack, as we've seen several times already. What we have in verses 9 through 13, our prayer, I believe, is particularly important, because this passage sets forth in a broad way the nature of true godly living. And this itself will prove to be a powerful contradiction to what follows in the teaching of the Colossian heretics. First of all, Paul's doctrine of true holiness and the, in the uh, heretics' doctrine of true holiness, there is a different source for that holiness. According to the truth, Paul's doctrine, true holiness is the work of God's grace in the hearts of his people by the Spirit through the Word. It is the work of God's grace in the hearts of his people by the Spirit through the Word, his will. It is God's work, not man's work, the work of God's grace. It does not come by subjection to fleshly ordinances. True holiness does not come through what is called asceticism. True holiness certainly does not come through Jewish observances, nor does it come through the strivings of men. It is the work of God's grace, not the work of man. Also, it is the work of his spirit through the word. And this is of vital importance. 
not mystical Gnosticism or fleshly indulgence or injury. It comes through the Word of God. We see, secondly, a difference not only in the source, but regarding the nature of a true godly walk. It is characterized by gospel holiness rather than by subjection to an amalgamation of Jewish and man-invented ordinances. And this, of course, has always been a deception. Even the Pharisees were inclined to believe that they had true holiness because they subjected themselves to various ceremonies, some of which were biblical or of biblical origin, and some of which were of their own invention, like the washing of ceremonial washing of hands before meals, merely the traditions of the elders. But that is not gospel holiness. Gospel holiness... Also, the nature of true godly walk is characterized by an increasing knowledge of God as he reveals himself in his word and by a corresponding growth in true relationship with him, not by mystical experiences that supposedly lead one to union with divinity. It's by increasing knowledge of God as he reveals himself in his word. The true godly walk brings patient suffering of tribulation, not pride and vanity and being puffed up with oneself. True gospel holiness is centered on the Father and especially on the Son, not on angels or spirit beings. So as we continue in the letter, as we reach that portion, we'll want to hold this in the back of our minds, this description of the true godly walk because it draws the Colossians back to the center and to the central and to the truth and takes them away from the things which had been so lately distracting them Philosophy, vain deceit, the traditions of men, the rudiments of the world, will worship, the commandments and doctrines of men. It brings them back to real godliness, holy living, patient suffering of tribulation, increasing in the knowledge of God as he reveals himself in his word, thanksgiving for deliverance, And in fact, this very point that the Apostle makes regarding their having been delivered from the power of darkness itself is, I think, a slight against the false teachers because Gnosticism and Gnostic concepts, which is this is always is combined together with the Jewish traditionalism in the Colossian era has always been greatly concerned with escaping into the realm of knowledge, of, of, of escaping from uh, bondage into enlightenment. And Paul makes it very clear, if you are Christ's, if you are subject to the redeeming work of God, you have been delivered. 
You don't need to escape from anything. You've already been delivered from darkness and placed in a new kingdom. It's been done. And as we considered last week, not done a little bit. Done. One of the major contrasts uh, here, I think, is something I want to bring out also applicationally. The list that we've been considering, of course, in verses 9 through 13, is powerful and somewhat overwhelming. But it is not given in order to become a new law to us. It is not set forth here as our duty, although many of these things are set forth elsewhere in the scriptures as having some regard to our duty, but it's not set forth here as our duty. It is set forth here as the work of God for which they are praying and can pray for in confidence because it is a work that glorifies and pleases God. When we look at these verses we are confronted with a description of the power of the grace of God. This alone is the source of all right, God-honoring walking. God works in us to will and to do His good pleasure. This doesn't mean that we do nothing or that we're some sort of entirely passive recipient or that there are no means or anything like that. But that's not what's set forth here. What is talked about here is the work of God's grace in the lives of His elect people by the power of His Spirit. It's God's work. Now this is both a confidence-inspiring and a freeing doctrine. It is confidence-inspiring because we know, then, that all of these things are bound up with the glory of God. And God will be glorified in His people. In fact, the new covenant, as illustrated in Jeremiah 31, is illustrated by way of a promise, an unconditional promise, a promise of what God was going to do. In those days, I will put my law in their inward parts. I will write it in their hearts. And so, with this promise, we can both pray with confidence, our faith and hope resting on the sure promise of God, and we can live in hope, knowing that if this is the work of God, and we are His, and know Him, then He will surely make these things to be so in us. It is His glory and good pleasure to do so. But it is not only a confidence-inspiring doctrine, it is a freeing doctrine. It frees us from bondage to all the schemes of men as to how to attain holiness. All around, through all of history, we see every manner of pursuit in order to reach God. The whirling dervish spins himself into a frenzy, the masochistic Hindu tortures his body to reach holiness. The contemplative Buddhist abandoning life and family and society in search of the enlightenment that will bring him inner peace. The poor, deluded Roman Catholic desperately seeking to work or to buy the righteousness necessary to salvation. But the end of all of these things is death. They are in vain. 
Freedom is only in one, the Son of God. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Free from wrath and curse, free from bondage to sin, free from self-righteous or fanatical endeavors after salvation, adopted as a Son of God, renewed after His image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. All the work of God. Do you notice how all of these words... All of these words imply the work of God. Do we adopt ourselves to be God's children? No. We are adopted by God. Do we renew ourselves by regeneration? No. Renewal is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Can we secure pardon for ourselves? Do we pardon ourselves of sin? Well, we may wish we could pardon ourselves of sin, but we do not because we are not the governor and the judge. Do we deliver ourselves? No. Do we redeem ourselves? No. Can a man sanctify himself? No. All of these things, all of these words that are used to describe the salvation of God's people describe the work of God's grace. Freedom. Freedom to live in holiness by the work of God in us. Free indeed. In these verses, also, we said that we arrive at the conclusion, at the culmination of Paul's prayer. <clears throat> and with what truth do we conclude but none other than the preeminence of the Son, Jesus Christ. Now this last text, transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son, is in fact a pivot that launches us into the rest of the chapter, which largely consists of setting forth in detail the preeminence of the Son. But already in this text, we have four points set forth that illustrate Christ's unique preeminence. And this, remember, is an obvious answer to the representations of the false teachers, which, for example, among other things, were setting aside Christ in preference for angels. Four things that, from these couple of verses, demonstrate already the preeminence of Christ. First of all, most importantly, I think, he is the Son of God's love, His beloved Son. This is totally unique to Christ, both in being the Son of God and in being the Son of God's love. Christ is the eternal Son, the natural Son, the divine Son. He is not adopted to be God's child as we are, he is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son. And He is the one in whom the Father delights always and has from eternity, in whom He is well pleased, the one whom He loves uniquely with a love unlike that towards any other. Now this is a great mark of honor and preeminence and should immediately... Uh, arrest the hearer 
with a vision and an awareness of the uniqueness and the elevation of Christ, of whom, other than the Son, has God ever said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Others are his servants. The Christ is his Son. So the first mark of Christ's preeminence over all others is that he is uniquely beloved of God, the Son of his love. Secondly, he is the king over the kingdom. This text tells us that God's people are placed in a new, holy, righteous kingdom. But it also tells us that this kingdom is the kingdom of Jesus, he is the Lord of the realm. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thine footstool? Unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Now it ought to be obvious that if this is a divine heavenly kingdom, then the one who is anointed king over that kingdom must be very great indeed. In fact, must be none other than the Lord God himself. Yet Christ, the seed of David, the fulfillment of the promise to David that the scepter would never depart from the seed of David, is most clearly set forth here as the king. And thus his preeminence over all is established again. He is the king of the divine kingdom. By implication, may I also say, uh, as the head and lord and king of believers delivered from bondage to God by God, uh, then to deny him to deny this king is to return to Egypt to challenge the head over God's people set there by God's anointing. It would be, in fact, a high-handed rebellion, an attempt to dethrone the one who was the king. Now, if he is the king, and if to challenge and demean him and to fail to recognize this preeminence is a high-handed rebellion that dethrones him, should we then listen to those who would do so? Of course not. And so by challenging and denying and downplaying the preeminence of Christ, the Colossian heretics show themselves to be rebels, rebels against God we saw, thirdly, that this passage refers directly to the Abrahamic covenant. This, uh, verse 12 and 13. And once again, Christ's preeminence is seen in the fact that he only is the true seed of Abraham. It's not the descendants of Abraham who are the seed, the true seed. It says, now to Abraham and his seed, Galatians 3.16, were the promises, plural, made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, 
which is Christ. And part of the promise was, of course, the promise of land, which was typical when given to the physical offspring of the heavenly inheritance. But Christ as the seed is the true and proper heir of the inheritance. So that if we are to join in the blessings, it is only by being accounted His. And indeed, we find that the Scriptures hold forth that believers are united to Christ in such a way as to be His body, to be accounted, in a sense, a part of Christ, so that by this union, we too can become heirs. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. But the important point is that we recognize that Christ is not only the king, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, Christ is the heir to the kingdom, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He is the seed. And the seed is truly one, the seed of these promises is truly one who is preeminent, in whom will all the nations of the earth be blessed. To no other do these things properly and personally belong. They only belong to us by being engrafted into him. We share in his inheritance. Fourthly and finally, his preeminence is seen in the fact that the uh, work of deliverance here recounted is unto him. It culminates in the transfer of the people of God from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom. It is not unto men, it is not unto angels that they are delivered, but unto the Lord Jesus Christ, so that this great work, this salvation of God's people, is represented as being in its execution a thing that culminates in Christ. Now it must be evident that to be mentioned as the one unto whom the objects of such a great deliverance are brought, of divine salvation no less, is to be marked with a great preeminence. So four things already that tag for us the preeminence of Christ. He is the only true and proper heir of the kingdom. He is the only king of the kingdom. He is the uniquely beloved Son of God. And it is unto Him that we are brought in our deliverance. Now, to deny the preeminence of the Son, given these things, is to renounce the king of the kingdom. To deny the preeminence of the Son is to renounce the heir of the inheritance. To deny the preeminence of the Son is to, uh, of Christ is to renounce the one beloved of God. In fact, in fact, to challenge the wisdom of God's love. To deny the preeminence of Christ is to renounce the one unto whom we are delivered when we are set free from the power of darkness. Now, if it were an earthly kingdom, and one were to renounce the king, 
to renounce the son who was the heir, to renounce the one beloved, to renounce the one unto whom the prisoners were brought in deliverance. It would be accounted a high-handed, treasonous, wicked rebellion. And it is no different when it is the heavenly kingdom of which we speak. Hebrews chapter 10. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. In fact, we saw that principle established in our Old Testament reading, even though it was wickedly used. Two sons of Belial brought false witness against Naboth. He was put to death. He that despised for supposedly despising Moses' law for blaspheming God. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how did, did Naboth get a second chance? Did Naboth get an appeal? Did Naboth get to sit in prison for the next 30 years while his lawyers worked on the case and finally got him out? No. Two witnesses. Wicked men. Two witnesses who lied, accused him, couldn't prove his innocence, he died without mercy. Of how much sorer punishment do you suppose shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How desperate the case of those who rebel against God in this high-handed wickedness. How desperate the case of the one who casts off God, who renounces the king and will not receive him when he comes to claim his due and right, who renounces the heir, thereby cutting himself off from the inheritance, who renounces the beloved son, thereby cutting himself off from the adoption, who renounces the one unto whom he would be delivered, were he delivered from the power of darkness. And yet so is the case with every child of man born under heaven. All are rebels. All renounce the kingdom except ye be born again, ye cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And how glorious then, when God, in His sovereign mercy, works that mighty redemption upon rebels, castaways, God-haters, yea, the off-scourings of the world, the chief of sinners and makes them to be fit for the inheritance of the saints in the light, makes them to be good subjects of the king, adopts them into the family that they might be heirs of the inheritance and become themselves the sons of God. Truly the work of God's grace. Next week, then, we will pick up with verse 14 
in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, and we will consider the other prominent aspect of redemption held forth here, not God's work delivering us from the power of darkness and removing us to his kingdom, not his work in us, but his work for us, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thank mm-hmm. you.